look at real disciples. Uh, this morning, Simon the Zealot. A revealing look at who they were, who we are, and who we can be in light of their stories. Next week, we'll be looking at uh, James the Less. We would have probably called him Smalley or uh, Little James. And uh, Thaddeus, who was actually known by more than one name. We'll talk about that this next week. But this morning, Simon the Zealot. My name is Simon. I'm a real disciple of Jesus Christ, just as you. I wasn't the only one in our band named Simon. You know the more prominent one of us, Simon Peter. And for that reason, many suspect I'm labeled amongst the twelve as Simon the Zealot, just to distinguish me from the more prominent Simon in our bunch, Simon Peter. But actually, that becomes the, the only singular piece of information about me in all of the New Testament, other than the fact that I walked with the twelve. Simon, the zealot. I may have spoken in the Scriptures, but it's never accredited to me. I certainly wasn't a mute. But not a single other word of distinction is spoken about me. Nothing I said, nothing particularly that I did, just Simon, the zealot. But in that one word, what a picture. What a window to who I must have been. Luke calls me Simon called the zealot. It's as if he can't quite believe that there was even one among us. Perhaps I was the least likely that anyone would have picked to become a follower of Jesus. But I was a man of zeal. All zealots were. A man of resolve. Isn't there just something about resolve? It's, it's almost written into the code of manhood. This recognition, this innate recognition and respect for resolve. You admire it, don't you, in the athlete? The athlete that won't be denied? In the soldier that pays the full me- measure of devotion? In the leader that will not be daunted? In the follower that will not hold back? Resolve. There was something about the twelve that must have drawn me to them. Something about the twelve that made me think this was a bunch that I could give myself to so completely. I saw resolve in the twelve. They were ordinary guys. and There's much talk about how they betrayed Jesus in the end. But they stuck it out longer than anyone else. They were the marathon men of devotion. And I was proud to be counted among them. Jesus' challenges weren't always easy. And certainly it's not always comfortable to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Great sacrifices, though they're a bargain, we're sometimes called to. 
Jesus had been talking about the kind of devotion that was due Him. They were words that were hard to hear. Crowds had started together because He gave free food. Fed 5,000 one afternoon. Quite a banquet on no budget at all. They all came back. But He wasn't there to deceive anyone. He told them straight that if anyone would follow after Him, they would be those who ate His flesh and drank His blood. It sounded so graphic, so violent. Many didn't have the heart for it. They turned away. He said that He was the manna that came down out of heaven. And in so doing, He was saying that He was to be our sustenance. That we were to sustain ourselves just by our relationship with Him. That there, there, was, there was power enough there. He was claiming to be divine. To be God. Do you understand that means no rival loyalties? The Scriptures are clear about it. You're not worthy to follow after me if even mother or father are placed ahead of me. Do you just ignore statements like that? So complete. So radical. So much resolve. Well, as Jesus called what was due from those who followed Him, many decided not to follow anymore. But there were those who stayed the way. In John chapter 6, verse 66, I'm not mentioned at all by name, but I am mentioned. As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Jesus anymore. Jesus said, for, said therefore to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them and said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. John goes on in the next verse with his commentary as if to alleviate the suspense that we were all left in that day. In hindsight, he says, Now Jesus meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray Him. We didn't have the privilege of that kind of hindsight. And though this is an artist's rendition, Leonardo da Vinci, hundreds of years later, in the garb of their day, he nevertheless paints me into the picture in an interesting spot. The one here farthest from Jesus. This depicts the Last Supper where Jesus told us again that one of us would betray Him. It was as shocking then as it was this first day that we heard it. But maybe Leonardo was onto something. If you notice with the news Jesus has just shared, the table is 
in chaos. Everyone seems to be looking at Jesus pretty much, awaiting the next word. You know, the other shoe to drop. The naming of the betrayer. But if you'll notice, there's only one disciple that others are looking at. Simon, the zealot. I find it interesting who it is that's looking at me. Levi. That treacherous tax collector. Poor Thaddeus is there in the middle. Clueless as ever. Why would they turn and look at me? Simon. The zealot. Why in that moment would it come to focus on me? Well, if you understood the meaning of that one word, the zealot, perhaps you would have been suspicious too. The zealots were the original terrorists. Today, much of what happens in Terrorist activity can be traced back to this first group, the zealots. The group that I was a part of. We were religious. We were fanatics. We were impatient. We wanted things to change and we wanted things to change immediately. Well, if it was announced this morning that one of you is a traitor and a betrayer in our midst, and one of those guys were sitting amongst you? Who would you be staring at? I'm a zealot. I was a man full of passion for what was right. The patriots of America were perhaps much like us, freedom fighters. I believed with all my heart that no one was due the right of ruling a Jew but God alone. Under God, we were free. No man could hold us under his thumb. Certainly no, no Gentile ruler. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That, you guys are Gentiles. Um, no Roman ruler, no Caesar. We were the original Al-Qaeda. And just like they, we, we knew we were right to the certainty of even pledging our own lives. We, we struck fear into the hearts of people simply by the uncompromising resolve we had for our cause. Everyone knew that a zealot had already decided that his life was worthy of the cost of the cause. There was nothing we would not do. Nothing. Those among us that were the specialists, the Zakari, would carry a, a curved knife up their sleeve. There were times when we were out in the open, when we were openly rebelling. That happened just in the years before Jesus. In fact, in Acts 5.37, our original leader, Judas of Galilee, is mentioned 
Gamaliel in the council mentions him as one that many followed after, but that he was killed and and his people were scattered. The truth behind that story is, is the rebellion started in Judea. That place that was even more Jewish than Galilee to the north. We didn't want the Romans around. The rebellion began and the strength of Rome was too much. They sent us into the hills of Galilee and there we, we hid out. There we perfected our craft as guerrilla warriors. We would in stealth sneak in just a few of us and wipe out Roman holdings and take out Roman soldiers on watch. In fact, if we were found alone with another Roman, we were sworn to take their life. We carried a knife up our sleeve for the convenience of the task. Uncompromising. We scared people. Once we were in the hills of Galilee, we went underground. We became people incognito. You never knew where we were going to be. The Romans feared us. Not so much in the open, but in the dark alleys. They were always looking over their shoulder for one of us. Wondering if the Jew scurrying through the streets was, was one that might take their life if they looked the other way. We were even feared by our own Jewish brothers and sisters. The rebellion heated up again sometime after Jesus. It was about 68 A.D. Our activities increased until Rome finally came in with a big surge again. Vespasian and others decided that we could be no more. They surrounded Jerusalem. We could have surrendered. We could have given in at that point. Much of the carnage of that rebellion would have been avoided if that was the case. But all those who were willing to surrender, we killed. Jews were afraid to even admit that they were willing to surrender because of us, the zealots. Jerusalem was overwhelmed. The walls came down. The city was conquered. The temple was desecrated. And we, with several hundred others, ran off to this this plateau, this desert fortress. And for two years, we held off the strength of Rome. This was Herod's palace bunker out in the wilderness. A huge mountain with a flat top. Steep sides on all sides. The greatest of mountain climbers would have had a difficulty scaling those walls hundreds of feet into the air. It rises above the plateau of the Dead Sea like a huge pedestal. And at the top, Herod had even then built a wall around the top of that hill. You can still see his terrace off to the left. Those three jutting out points were levels of his palace by which he overlooked the whole valley. On top was a fortress. It was maybe a mile or so long and half a mile wide. Thousands of people could live up there. And we did. The storehouse was stocked 
we could have lived, some say, for maybe five to ten years. We held them at bay for two. The strength of Rome, General Silva, could not overcome us. A whole legion of Romans could be wiped out simply by taking one of those person-sized boulders we had on the top. If you'll go one more slide there, you'll see. There it is, Masada. Perhaps a, a, a better look. One more, please. There she is. have no idea who she is. <laughs> but many of those boulders still remain at the top of that fortress to this day. Tourists go there to Masada and are amazed by the story that's told there. No one would know it if there weren't for three survivors, three unknown survivors to the zealots that day. Thousands of us were at the top of that hill. And it was fairly easy that first year or so to roll those boulders off the top like a big marble and take out a whole Roman legion. In fact, if you go back one, one slide, two slides, one more, there you go, you can see down the little insert up at the top, that little square that's marked there is actually one of the old Roman camps that's still visible today at the foot of Masada. They built huge walls around their encampments so that these boulders, like massive cannonballs, would not take out hundreds during the night. Silva and all his army were there, and yet they were making no gains against us. Then he played his trump card. Our families, our Jewish brothers and sisters that he had captured in Jerusalem and made his slaves, he brought to Masada. And there, despite the huge walls that were there, with our own people, he started building this dirt ramp. Can you see it to the left? It's still there, though eroded. In 70 AD, 71 AD, he finally crested the top of that. Our bowling ball strategy would no longer work when our own family our own brothers and sisters were the ones building the ramp so he built and he built and he built it took months but finally they crested the hill finally they built the ramp up to the height of the wall and rome gave its gave its warrior cry and started over that hill, but their victory was hollow that day. Because when they came over the wall, there was not a one of us left alive. They witnessed the resolve of the zealots. One at a time, the story goes, we had taken the lives of our own family. They shared our resolve so that they were willing all but one mother and her two children who hid in the cisterns on the top of that hill. Thousands of us died that day. And then finally those that, of us that were left fell on our own swords. Rome had no victory that day. At whatever the cost, 
we had stolen it from them. And to this day in my country, Israel, when the military, when the army is sworn in and commissioned, they still gather on that hill. If you'll roll it forward, you'll see one more. The hill is lit up on those nights and a solemn service of swearing in and of commissioning happens right up there where the boulders still lie. In the winds, you can almost hear the resolve. And finally, at the end of the commissioning, as those soldiers give their vow to defend Israel, they all stand, commander and sworn followers. And together they say these words, there will never be another Masada. They pay tribute to the resolve and the sacrifice of the zealots. They determined that with their own lives, the lives of those who have defended Israel, their sacrifice, our sacrifice, will not be in vain. Resolve. It's part of being a disciple, really. I admired it in the other 12 that I walked with. and Perhaps as they heard Jesus' call, they knew something of the grit of a zealot was a part of that all-out commitment. Have you ever witnessed anything like that kind of resolve and that kind of commitment? I did. I did and and more. Even something greater than what happened on the tops of Masada. I, I didn't see it in the resolve of a soldier for country. It, it wasn't in a mother's devotion to her child. I saw it again and again in our Savior's unflinching, unfading love for you and for me. I saw it when he called me. I saw it when he challenged us and when he corrected us. When he believed in us and when we broke his heart. I saw it in his windblown face that day he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Having met there, the others told us with Elijah and Moses. Having counseled with them and been confirmed that he must go to Jerusalem, I saw it in his face. Nothing, nothing could have held him back. Though we knew that death probably awaited us in Jerusalem, he was determined. He was resolved. I saw it in the way that he loved us that night. That he girded about himself a towel and washed our feet. And taught us that love expresses itself in 
servant loyalty. His was a different kind of resolve. It, it wasn't that crazed, testosterone fogged uh, enthusiasm that I knew us zealots to work ourselves into. Now, this, 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 this was something steady. It was something persistent. It was something relentless. This was sober love. And he never flinched in pouring it out to those that he loved. I, I saw it that day that zeal for his father's house broke out. That last week when when they had turned the house of God into a place of marketing and a mockery. I watched Jesus braid that whip. His was not a burst of rage. It was righteous fury. He cleaned them out of that place. Zeal for my Father's house will consume me, the Scripture said. We all remembered that, but... This wasn't a, a man that was committed to some kind of building somewhere. Do you understand? He said this would be a house of prayer. What infuriated him was anything that would come between his father's love and those that he loved. He knew his father's heart. And he was willing to pay the greatest price. To see that no one ruled the hearts of men, but the one who had given them that heart. The one who would set them free. The one who believed them in enough to give them life and to give them new life in his name. I watched him clear the temple, but the temple had always been a meeting place for God and people. When something got in the way, Jesus was certain it had to go. He wasn't concerned just with other things coming between us and God. He was most concerned in that greatest barrier between us and God. And sometimes that's our own sinful heart. Our own unwillingness to recognize Him for who He is and give Him the devotion that He's due. So he didn't just clear the temple. He carried my cross. And he carried yours. Others would flee from the crosses that they had to bear punishments for the crimes that they had committed. They knew its finality. They knew there was no escape from a cross. All who were hung there, died. Their reactions were reasonable and natural. What was unnatural was the way he clung to his cross. It wasn't anything that intimidated it. He, he held it like an instrument in his own hands. He cherished it because he knew what it meant. It meant the wiping away of anything that would ever need separate us from God, and as he gave his life on the cross and poured himself out completely, 
the heart of the Father was waiting on the other side of that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from all those who would worship Him. And it was rent, not from bottom to top, as if some man had gotten a hold of it and ripped it open, but from top to bottom. I wasn't there. But I swear if I had been, I would have seen the knuckles of God in the top of that curtain. Our Father raised him from the dead to vindicate that the way that he's made for us to him is the way that God has given us. I call you to have a zealot's kind of resolve to, to trust him, to follow him, to live to honor him. Whatever the sacrifice, claim it as a bargain. To give the one who loves you like that glory. To honor him. No one knows for sure who it was that asked him. As Jesus had died and been resurrected and come back as we were waiting, though we didn't know it then, for his ascension to the Father, he, he had told us to gather in in, in uh in Jerusalem and to wait for the, the Holy Spirit to come upon us. And when we did, it would, the Spirit would fill us with such power that we would become His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. I hoped I was up to that kind of devotion. I wasn't sure if I was. But when the Holy Spirit came upon us, changed everything we don't know who asked actually lord is this the time that you're talking about is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to israel <laughs> sounds like a zealot's question doesn't it who knows it may have been me i'm not telling but something inside me changed that day Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and that was just the beginning. It's recorded nowhere in the Bible, but tradition says that I, with Joseph of Arimathea, you need someone to pay the passage, you know what I mean? Joseph of Arimathea, remember him? The one who offered my Lord his unfinished tomb in the garden. He was a man with some means. And if I was going to get to the ends of the world for my Lord, I knew I needed a partner. Tradition says that we went through Egypt and then on to Spain. But that wasn't the end of the known world to the West at that time. It was that island beyond England. Joseph of Arimathea and myself went as far as we possibly could we had no idea this place even existed at the time, you see. The farthest reach to the east of the Roman Empire was England, and we witnessed for Christ there. And then we worked our way back across the world, went as far north as Armenia. And then the last corner, Persia. Somewhere in that process, Jude 
joined me. Joseph of Arimathea was an older man and perhaps, you know, was, was too old to make the journey. Maybe we just ran out of money. You know, people like that don't talk about things like that. He just dropped out. Jude was my partner as I went as far as Persia. The far eastern recesses of the known world. Isn't it interesting that I grew up my whole life hating Rome and then Rome. Rome's roads and Rome's language became the tools I used. Those I hated. God made my brothers. Both Jude and I were martyred in Persia, as the traditions go. His life was taken with a, uh, what do they call it? It's one of those huge swords at the end of a long pole. A uh, what? Halpered. That's exactly what it was. You've got to have that kind of momentum to get all the way through the neck. I had a different fate. Perhaps those that killed me were making a point that my single-minded devotion for my Lord must have its end. But I was sold out to Christ until the end. They couldn't separate me from my Lord even though they sawed my body in half. And I will tell you this day and I will proclaim for all eternity that any moment of suffering that I had for the sake of my Lord is today a crown I wear with joy. Where does this kind of devotion come from? It doesn't come from roots of preparation being a zealot. That's a cup far too shallow. If you would follow Jesus as I have followed Jesus and as those disciples before you have followed, then you must understand that the following of Jesus, that kind of devotion starts nowhere but with Jesus. It's only focusing on His devotion for you and His love for you that that kind of love can ever be kindled in your own heart. We as human beings are simply not capable of this kind of devotion unless we're living loved. Unless we have a greater reward. Unless we found the treasure that's worth, that is that pearl that nothing else can compare to. 
and we willingly, we gladly part with all that we might have that treasure. That treasure isn't heaven. And that treasure isn't the good life. That treasure is knowing the Lord that makes life good. So if you would be a disciple, I, Simon the Zealot, say to you this morning, let His Spirit blow through you this morning like the winds of Masada. Better still, the winds of Calvary. May His life and His love and His sacrifice come so to alive within you that it's He that lives within you. If you would hear your commission as disciples of Christ this morning, would you stand with me? Soldiers of Christ, arise. The Holy Spirit coming upon you, be His witnesses then. In this town, in this nation, in all the nations of this world. Give your lives as He has given His life for you. I commission you, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that He has taught you. Teach them to obey it, to observe it, to live it by the power of the Spirit that goes with you and will be with them. These are the words that conclude our commissioning. There will never be another Jesus. Would you say it with me? There will never be another Jesus. No one like Him that's worthy of your all. No one that you could ever so rightly, so joyfully call Lord. The vow of our day and the vow still today of a disciple is simply this. Jesus is Lord. No rival. No equal. No compromise. Jesus is Lord. Would you say it with me? With Jesus is Lord. Today your voices echo with those who have said it before. And I pray that you'd live such a life that the life you live will bring honor to his sacrifice. God, this day, even in a country as comfortable as America, needs hearts that love him and are devoted to him with a zealot's zeal. 
May you so follow after him. Be so shaped by the way he loves you that your love for him might become a small reflection of his for you. If this morning you would make that vow, Jesus is Lord. If this morning you would join this company of spiritual soldiers as we live for him together, the altar of this church is open for you to make that vow to the one who has vowed his all to you. This altar is open this morning for you to join real disciples right here, right now, as we stand and sing. You come if you feel the winds of Calvary calling you this morning. Let's sing together.